right, so I've been promoing this thing all week. I've been setting up my Instagram and everything else. It's finally time to record. This is episode number one of the Wax Museum podcast, where I get to talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. I'm your host, Kyle, and I want to take some time to start this whole thing off with a topic that I see brought up at least several times a year, if not more, and that's this whole Panini exclusive NBA license. Because a lot of people really aren't sure how we got here, and they're really not sure what the options are going forward. Everyone has their own ideas about Panini. I'm not going to express mine necessarily what I think is good or bad. I will say I think they've done a lot of good and bad. Um, But in order to adequately address this topic, I'm going to split it into three parts. I'm going to try and talk about everything in basketball cards leading up to 2009, a very concise version. Then I'm going to look at the 2009-2010 product season itself. And then I'm going to look at going forward and after after that point in going forward. Um, so let's start off with everything prior to 2009. Um, obviously, it was for, sports cards, non-sports cards have been around for over well over 100 years now, um, especially baseball cards. There were tobacco cards. So there were early iterations of basketball cards already. Um, they really weren't popularized for a long time. We had um, the Bowman 1948 set that has the Mike and Rookie, which a lot of people are familiar with that. But at the time, Bowman wasn't owned by Topps. They were still separate companies. You had cards that you could cut off of Wheaties boxes, which also featured George Mikan in the early 50s. But we didn't really have a main standalone set that we can look back as a staple in the hobby until 1957. And that's when Topps came around. They had their set. Well, guess what? They didn't do it again for a while. Fleer came around in 1961. They had their set. Um, Well, guess what? They didn't do it for a while after that either. Until finally, starting in 1969, we had Topps, and they created sets from 69 all the way into the early 80s. Um, They created a set every year. So we finally had some continuity within this market. The problem was basketball as a whole still wasn't very popular in this time frame. Even going into the 80s, basketball, the NBA Finals was on a tape delay. It's hard to imagine that now, and obviously we have Twitter and everything. The NBA Finals was on a tape delay. So as we moved into the 80s, I know I just skipped through a lot of years there, But there really wasn't a market for basketball cards at the time. Baseball cards were fine. There really wasn't a market, though, for basketball cards. And that's even in the mid-80s, in the early to mid-80s, the Star Company, they established an exclusive license for the time being um, where they distributed cards through hobby shops, through stadiums. But it wasn't like pulling your favorite players out of packs. That's when 86 Fleer comes along. Now, we all know 1986 Fleer because of the Michael Jordan rookie. But hindsight is 2020. Even though people now had the opportunity to pull one of the league's upcoming stars, and he'd already been in the league, even though it's his rookie, obviously he'd already been in the league. 
you now had a chance to pull Michael Jordan cards. In fact, there were, in most cases, or in most boxes, there were three per box, but hindsight's 2020. It just wasn't a popular set at the time. So then we move through into the late 80s and early 90s, and we see hoops, manufacturing cards. We get really the, the junk era, but that's what a lot of us grew up in. That's what a lot of us know. Um, Tops came back into the game finally in the early 90s. Upper Deck came back into the game. Um, it was really popularized. Um, these brands carried it. You, really, your, your big three started to emerge Heading into the late 90s, you also had players driving that. You had Jordan, you had Iverson, you had Kobe. So heading into the late 90s and early 2000s, we had our big three in manufacturing sports cards. We had our upper deck, our tops cards, and our Fleer cards. Okay, And even then, moving into the 2000s, we see um, upper deck was really starting to make some power plays. Um, one of them happened to be 2003. Now, we all know 2003 as LeBron's rookie year, right? It was a really big deal. Well, Exquisite was a crazy idea when it came out. $500 for a box of basketball cards. You've got to be kidding me. But you got to hand it to Upper Deck. They, it's like they could see it ahead of time. 2003 was the perfect storm. You had LeBron James. You had, you know, just this this growing, this curious market. He was bringing people back into collecting. So they decided to capitalize on it, and it worked out. The problem was for all three brands, though, as we moved into the years after that, and even that year there, um, the sports card market it was saturated. There were just too many releases. And there wasn't enough demand for the product. So then we get to 2004, and we've got Fleer. Um, they're really struggling. People knew they were struggling. And this, remember, I mentioned that Upper Deck was making some power plays here, right? So Upper Deck made an offer to purchase either FLIR or their assets or their intellectual properties, I'm assuming it's just the whole company here, for $25 million into around 2004. FLIR declined. FLIR's under this idea that, well, we think the market will turn around. We think that things are going to change. Well, unfortunately for them, it didn't. And I remember the FLIR bankruptcy. I'm not going to talk a lot about it right now. That's an episode for another day entirely. But in 2005, they basically declared bankruptcy. They liquidated their assets they, and sold their rights and their intellectual property to Upper Deck, get this, for $6.1 million. So we talked about how the these three companies had established themselves as the big three. Well, and then there were two. Because Fleer, at this point, was done with. Okay, Upper Deck eventually brought the branding back, but it wasn't a company in itself. Upper Deck owned them. Okay, so now we had these other two brands. We had Tops and Upper Deck. They continued to make sets um, into the 2000s. In fact, Upper Deck even then tried to buy Tops in March of 2007, which a lot of people don't remember. Um, so this market was still 
somewhat saturated, even though we didn't have FLIR. And interestingly enough, people were really keeping an eye on it, but these NBA licenses were slated to expire around the same time in 2009. So this is where we enter the second stage of our podcast, where we start to talk about this whole, this crazy end of 2008 and then this 2009-2010 season, which was interesting as far as the NBA goes, but also interesting, very interesting as far as the card market and this whole industry and where it was headed. So in mid-2008, we have this European company. You probably, If you've collected cards, you knew of them at least because you'd seen the stickers before. They were called Panini, and they decided we're going to make an aggressive push to get into the sports card business. Now, up until that, now, when I say sports cards, I should say um, basketball specifically, because they had been making um, some soccer products, some World Cup products, some pop culture products, and then obviously the stickers. And these were very popular globally. But their pursuits in basketball were just were meager at best. But they decided that they wanted to make an aggressive bid for the NBA license. And it's interesting because the NBA then decided also that they wanted to move to an exclusive license. Now, the truth of the matter is it's, it's likely that Panini just threw down an offer that was so big that it just really changed the game. Um, the NBA kind of chose this PR route that said, well, you know, there's some saturation and we want an exclusive and we want to go with this global route. And hey, these other companies are on board with this idea that we should have an exclusive. An exclusive, it, it wasn't a, a new thing necessarily. Upper Deck had, I believe it was in 2006, they had an exclusive in hockey. So it wasn't an entirely new thing. Um, but it was interesting. They slapped down their their big bid, um, whether the NBA had already decided to go exclusive or not at that point, and everyone seemed to put their own spin on it. Um, I was doing a little reading online ahead of this, and I, I found an old article by Darren Ravel who a lot of you sh- should know from Twitter and from ESPN as he's really the sports money guy, right? He talks about deals. He talks about licensing. Well, he wrote for CNBC at the time, and he wrote about this deal with Panini. And he said it might have been another step towards putting the card industry into the grave. And that was in 2009. Now, I am going to read some of these statements for you because I want you to see kind of the perspective of each of these companies that was still around at the time. You had Panini, who was making the purchase. Uh, Well, you had the NBA as well. And then you had Tops, and then you had Upper Deck. So everyone put their own spin on it. So you had the NBA, and they said, As we look forward to the future of our trading card business, There is general consensus, including with our current partners, Tops and Upper Deck, that moving forward with an exclusive partner is the best way for us to energize the category globally. 
So they're really interested in this global aspect now. Now notice they mentioned that their current partners, Tops and Upper Deck, were all on board with this. And yet, if it's an exclusive, there can only be one. So Tops, they basically bowed out. They said, we've had a strong relationship with the NBA, but the deal they made with Panini does not make economic sense for Tops. And then they continued, it may be great for the NBA, but the value wasn't there for us, and we've decided to invest elsewhere for the time being. We wish our colleagues at the NBA well and look forward to working with them in the future. Spoiler alert, here we are 10 years later and they haven't. So they haven't got to work with the NBA again. Now Upper Deck then, they released their statement and they said, well, Upper Deck is disappointed with the NBA's decision to grant exclusive trading card rights to a new licensee. They are reinforcing their commitment to producing the highest quality most innovative and value-rich basketball products. And they continued, Our focus remains on delivering great products to the loyal collectors and and consumers who have passionately supported Upper Deck basketball products. We are confident the remaining 2008-2009 NBA sets will be some of the best our industry has ever seen. Well, the truth of the matter was, and there were several factors for this, but 2009-2010, um, it, it was a pretty crazy year as far as NBA products go. Because if you look at um, Upper Deck, well, really Upper Deck and Tops, they knew they had lost the license. Panini, they signed an exclusive. Um, in fact, Panini signed it in January of 2009, and then they turned around in March and bought Donruss. And Donruss became Panini America. So that they basically bought the license and bought the infrastructure. It was a huge power move. So Upper Deck and Tops, they were just writing out their contracts. But they had all of these assets on hand. They had all of these jerseys. They had all this material. So it created a massive product dump for all of this stuff. I know now, you know, people will look at logo man cards number to five and say oh it just it diminishes the prestige of a logo man okay well this set was uh, sp game used that year had an interesting set let me see if i have the numbers here the the checklist is crazy chauncey billups had a logo man numbered to 16 kevin garnett had one numbered to 18 uh, i know jermaine o'neal was numbered to 15 LeBron James had a meager seven. Okay, so this, but but you know what? Personally, and I'll, I'll probably talk about this more in another episode. I loved it. Um, I love the fact that, you know, there are, I don't, I don't remember what Stockton is. Let's say there's 12 John Stockton logo men. Well, guess what? I've seen three or four major John Stockton collections and they all got to have a, a logo man. Because nobody was hoarding all 12 of them. So it kind of gave everyone a chance. And it wasn't like it was going to be an every year thing. I think that's part of the problem with Panini now. Is we've got five, five in this set, five in this set, five the next year and so on. However the numbers work out. But this was a one time thing. It was a huge product dump. You had crazy patches. You had all these logo men. And then 
there was 2009-2010 Exquisite. And Upper Deck, they put out their release. They finally announced it. It was supposedly a secret, even though a checklist leaked out. They said this product was top secret and only essential internal personnel knew about it to work it through the production process for it. Which, by the way, which, mind you, was very rushed. Um, if you've got some of the cards from 2009 Exquisite, you you can see that they're all hacked up. Like, the quality control just wasn't very good, but it was still a pretty good idea. They used old releases. They commemorated them. They got rid of the product. I didn't have a problem with that. In fact, I think it's great. Okay? Um, anyway... Um, they also, it's funny, they also pitched it. They said, this is going to be the only chance to pull a Ricky Rubio autographed exquisite rookie card. Collectors aren't even going to see another Rubio card for another two years, much less an exquisite rookie card, which that, um, ended up not being the case. Um, but you have to remember that he would, he ended up staying in Spain for a couple years, but there still were cards. So, um... Tops made similar moves. They had their uh, a set that I love. I only have one. I have the Brandon Rush, um, which I will be talking a lot about Pacers cards on here over time. But um, they made this set called Legendary Laundry Tags. They had Logo Men in it. I mean, they had. We're talking like a giant Wilson Elgin Baylor laundry tag, like Moses Malone. Um, just just awesome looking cards. Bernard King. Just awesome looking, just giant tags, which were really like a predecessor to some of the nice tag sets we've had since then, like um, Gold Standard used to make. They don't anymore, but just awesome stuff. So this was a, a product dump. Another interesting thing that we saw that year with Tops is that they only had two releases. They were running out of time, and they inserted Tops Chrome into the regular Tops release. So I and I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think there were like nine chrome cards in every hobby box. So that was something that was interesting. So it's like our hobby, really the modern hobby was at a crossroads because we had the end of Exquisite and they were um, paying tribute to some of their best sets throughout the years from Upper Deck. We had Tops, which had combined Tops and Tops Chrome for one last hurrah. And then you had Panini, who had just bought Donruss, so that also means playoff. And they're building on this National Treasures brand that already exists. But then it, it that was their entrance into the basketball world for National Treasures. Which now, if you look back at it, look at that rookie year. You had Blake Griffin. You had, well, at the time, Tyreek Evans was a big deal. He's not now. In fact, he's he's not even playing right now because of personal reasons, and we don't know what those are. You had James Harden. You had Steph Curry. You had DeMar DeRozan. Now, Curry um, was big then, but he wasn't... I mean, it, was, it wasn't bad to pull a Curry card then. I don't want to give you the wrong impression, but it, it also wasn't like the craze that we've had since then where Curry cards have blown up. But the point being... Um, there was a lot of firepower when it comes to players and products that year, and it was just a really unique year in the hobby that I can't ever see anything like that happening again. But then, 
Once again, that, that was the climate created by Panini getting this exclusive license. So then that begs the question then, going forward, what, what happened? Tops bowed out completely. They didn't have any basketball cards since then, as I mentioned. Um, you had Upper Deck, who for a while they um, used the college license to create some retro series and some exquisite some college versions and that had some level of popularity obviously with LeBron autographs and Jordan autographs those are going to drive any product well then Panini bought the college license so they're still making power plays three years later in 2012 Panini extended their agreement with the NBA for five years and then in 2017 they extended this again I don't know for how many years. I'm figuring it it will probably head into the early 2020s. But the point being, and this is where we get to the kind of the final segment of the podcast here, going forward, what's going on? I've seen people, I, I even saw someone create a petition. I don't fault them for this. Anyone that wants to take any type of hobby initiative, I I say go for it. But they tried to make a petition to get the NBA to open up to other brands again. And I think there's really a misunderstanding. Um, it's It's not that the NBA wants these other brands to necessarily jump in again. They have an exclusive license and... There's just no one that could actually jump in and outbid Panini. And these companies, Tops and Upper Deck, have really just given up on the basketball license. And there were some other reasons that went into that, but Upper Deck, they've been involved in several lawsuits, um, I believe more related to hockey and memorabilia. Tops is sticking with baseball, it's sticking with Um, WWE, UFC, pop culture, the whole sports entertainment deal. And there really isn't another company now with the funds and the infrastructure to support the license. Because you have to remember, Panini was a global company. Even though they didn't have a lot of experience with basketball products, they were a global company. They aggressively pursued the license. They had a lot of money. They had the global money, right? And then they bought Donruss to help with the infrastructure for Panini America. So they they were able to establish everything very quickly. But you have to think about all the costs that now go into design work and acquiring licenses and acquiring materials. And there's, there's really no one out there that I can think of that could even make that happen. So for the time being, it looks like Panini's all that we've got. I know there are other brands, like Leaf has tried a few products, but without the license, you're you're really limited. So, if we're going to sum things up today, um, I don't want to give you this whole idea of Panini is good or Panini is bad. I want you to make your own conclusions. Collect what you like. There should be, there's enough products there, you can probably find something you like. Okay, I own many, many Panini cards. You make your own judgment. But they're here to stay. 
and there's really not going to be any competition. And for those of you that have ever wondered how did we get to this point, I hope I've answered that question for you today. Until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. 